Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Uh, just this last week, I, uh, I read a story uh, online, and I think I was procrastinating at the time, so I ended up, as you do, in kind of these, uh, these back, the backwaters of the internet. And I, I heard a story about somebody, um, uh, actually a server, a restaurant in the Dallas area. The restaurant's called Applebee's. Are you familiar with, uh, with Applebee's? Okay. Yeah, nobody's willing to admit they eat there, but, um, but you're familiar. If you, if you work at Applebee's, there's no offense there. I've never been, but... Um, the response, let's say, has been mixed uh, this morning, as I've mentioned it. Anyway, uh, and the, the server at the restaurant, um, the server's name was Casey Simmons. Uh, Casey was going about his work one day, and somebody came in to the Applebee's restaurant and just ordered the cheapest thing on the menu. And it was apparently flavoured water. You can get that in Applebee's for 37 cents, folks, which is a bargain, I think. So they, they got flavoured water, and they left a tip. Now, the tip for the flavoured water on the 37 cents was $500. So, of course, Casey is, well, Casey is loving life <laughs> at this point. And with the tip, with this outrageous tip, uh, the person who doesn't give their name or anything just leaves a note on a, on a napkin. You can actually see some of the note online. I saw it this week. And on the note... Uh, the person left a bit of a background story. Why did they leave that tip? Well, it happened, so what happened the previous days that Casey was in, in line at a supermarket somewhere and saw in the line along the aisle or whatever else, saw somebody else, an older lady who was just looking despondent, really sad, really upset. And I suppose lots of people saw this lady, but the difference in Casey and these other people is that Casey decided to respond Casey decided to do something about it. And, and all he did initially was just to go up to this lady and engage her in conversation, you know, to try and be some sort of encouragement. And in fact, he ended up paying for her groceries. They cost him $17. Just as a way to, to bless this woman, just as a way to show her some love, this older lady. And she felt deeply encouraged. Now, what Casey didn't know uh, when he did that, was that the reason she was so upset was this, is the third, this was the third anniversary of her husband's death. A woman who came into the restaurant to give this <laughs> large tip, I think we can all agree that's a large tip, um, was this woman's daughter. And on this note that she wrote on this napkin, she said the following, on one of the most depressing days of the year, you made my mother's day wonderful. You insisted on paying told her that she is a very beautiful woman. I've not seen this woman smile that this much since dad died. What is it about this story that, that moves us? Maybe, I mean, it certainly moves me. What, what is it about this story that sort of reaches under the defenses that we operate with so often? It, even for the most kind of grouchy and cynical, maybe skeptical of us, we find ourselves maybe, you know, against our own will right now, being sort of warmed by it. There's something about this story that gets beyond sort of the day-to-day 
surface level interaction reaches into our hearts and it moves us and it warms us. What is it about this story? I want to suggest that the, the simple value of this story is that, is that Casey Simmons just did something, even a small gesture that was rooted in and that was based in love. It's just operating it within this paradigm, if you like, of love. He blessed this woman he didn't even know out of love. And, it, and it's love that moves us. It's love that touches us. We've been, for the last four weeks, I've been sort of in a bit of a, in a, bit of a series. You may not have noticed that there's been any connection between any of the messages. That, I have intended that there would be some sort of connection. And the connection is this. The first week we talked about friendship with God. And I was trying to suggest that, that friendship with God is actually the, one of the overarching um, narratives. If you like. It's like a storyline, a through line through the whole scriptures. I was trying to say, in fact, that what God creates for in the, in the first place is actually friendship. That's one way of looking at it. Unlike our friendships, that's not because of any need, any deficiency within him whatsoever. But of the abundance of his love he creates and he desires to have friendship with us. I was saying in the second week that that friendship, we gain hold of it by trusting him. The Bible calls that trust faith. And you could say that it's kind of synonymous, it's like equal with risk. As we risk, we actually begin to taste more friendship. It's like a virtuous cycle. We step in and as we step in more, we taste more friendship. It's like this virtuous thing. But I was saying last week that unless we have hope, that then our friendship, our faith, our trust will fade. We need to have with our faith, with our trust, we also need hope. And we need to make sure our hope is located in God, not our circumstance. And this week I want to say that we couldn't say all that needs to be said about God, all that needs to be said about friendship with him, unless we've talked about love. I want to say, in fact, that love is the very grounding, the the essential framework, the structure, the foundation for life with God. In fact, I want to say something more than that, that that without love, there, there is no life whatsoever. We can't exist as humans even without this love, without a a real encounter, a real experience of love. In fact, when we have not experienced, this is what you're doing at Laundry Love. You're saying, look, the, the, the basis of human flourishing is an experience of love. I want to say that the Christian faith understands this and offers this to each one of us. I want to do that by opening the Bible. Uh, you'll be pleased to know. I'm going to do that from John's Gospel, chapter 15. So open up with me, if you would, to that. We actually started four weeks ago in John 15. I'm going to look at the first part of, of, John, of John 15 rather than the latter part. And if you're new to the Bible, maybe you're new to church, um, the Bible, roughly speaking, is, is uh, divided into two. The first bit is the story of God's creative act and him calling a people Israel. It's, there, it's about their journey with God. And in the second bit, God himself shows up, as Eugene Peterson has it in the message, the word Jesus becomes flesh and blood and moves into the neighborhood. God gets closer in the person of Jesus. And there's four testimonies, four stories, biographies, if you like, of Jesus called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The last of these is John. And that's what we're picking up here. It's just biography of Jesus. And in chapter 15, what Jesus is doing is in the middle, if you like, of this commentators call the farewell discourse. In other words, what Jesus is doing with his disciples, his followers, his apprentices, is he's preparing them for life after himself. 
After he's gone, he's died, he's been raised from the dead, he knows this is going to happen. They're pretty slow on the uptake. But after he's gone to be with the Father, he's leaving them instructions so that they would know how to operate in his bodily absence. Right? It's like the parent, you know, who's leaving like teenagers at home and says, look, you must do this, you must do that, whatever you remember to do, water the flowers, you know, take the trash out, all that stuff. It's like Jesus is doing this for his disciples. He's saying, if you want to continue my example, here's how you do it. John 15 we catch up with Jesus really right in the middle of that. And this is what he says, verse one. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And these are the two verses I want to focus on. So lock in here. If you've not been listening, lock in. <laughs> As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this, so that you, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Amazing passage of scripture. To understand it, we actually first need to hear a little bit of context. So Jesus is picking up this image of the vine. Now, on the face of it, it's a really simple image, isn't it? He's saying, look, if you want to carry on being my disciples, if you want to kind of, after I'm bodily not here anymore, if you want to carry on being uh, being my disciples and following in my way, you need to understand that you need to be connected to me. In the same way that uh, a branch is connected to a vine, so you need to be connected to me even after I'm gone. It's a really simple image. It's quite powerful. What is a branch after all if it's not connected to like a tree or a stump, a vine? It's just a stick. That's, the, that's what Jesus is saying. It's like if you, if you fall off the vine, all you're good for is to be thrown into the fire. You have a use, but it's not really going to be very good for you. You're going you're to shrivel. You're going to wither. You must re- remain connected. So the language he uses here is, is really language of connection. Now, he's picking up imagery that's actually used in the Old Testament. This, this language of the vine is actually an image. It's used a number of times in the Old Testament for Israel. You see, the point in the first place, the reason God called Israel was to be a vineyard for him. He wanted a vineyard. Why, why, would, you, why would God want a vineyard? Why would you want a vineyard? Anybody feeling particularly brave this morning? Why, why would you want a vineyard? What do you want? Yeah, you, you want, yes, you want branches because you want fruit, because you want wine. Absolutely. The reason you want a vineyard is you want wine. And God wanted beautiful wine. Amen. God wanted wine. God wanted sweet tasting wine. Why did God want wine? Because God wanted people, the nations, the nations other than Israel to taste the wine. To say, wow, 
Somewhere there is a gardener. Somewhere there is a vine grower, a wine maker who knows what he's doing. I want to I wanna, I wanna go visit that vineyard. You see, I want to be in connection with that. I want to meet that guy. It's kind of to make the nations jealous in a positive sense, like, like we do on Instagram, so that they'd want what we have. <laughs> right? That's what God was looking for. The only problem is, is that Israel didn't really make very good wine. So through the prophets, God had to go to them again and again and say, look, you know, that, that wine you're making, it's not really what I ordered. It's kind of watered down. It tastes a bit bitter. I wanted sweet wine. Jesus says here, I am the true vine. He's saying, what you see here in me, this is what the Father intended all along. This is what the good wine tastes like. This is the new wine of the kingdom of God. Come and taste it. And so he says to his disciples, if you're going to be the kind of disciples who bear fruit, in other words, you produce the right grapes in the right uh, soil and, and, and who have the right soil so that the right grapes, so you know the conditions are all right so that you can produce great wine, you need to remain in me. And we get a little unstuck here because the language of remaining isn't language we use very often, is it? I, mean, I don't know when the last time you used the word remain was, it's probably a while ago. And then actually, if you look at some of the synonyms, the, the kind of equal words in other translations of, of this text in the Bible, there'll be things like abide. Like I, I guarantee you use the word abide like once every decade. <laughs> dwell is another one. And you're like, you know, you're not using the word dwell every day here in Long Beach. I don't think so. So we don't really get it, but maybe think about the opposite. Wander away. Like to dwell, the opposite of remaining would be to wander away. Jesus obviously doesn't want that for his disciples. They will do that, by the way. But he wants them to be closely connected to him. In fact, different commentators, one commentator I read this week talked about this language of, he said it's like mutual indwelling, mutual indwelling. Do you see that? That sense of the connection is so close that there is actually dwelling within, like a, like a vine. Like, how do you tell the difference in a vine and a branch? Where does one end and the other begin? As Radiohead said. <laughs> you don't know, do you? They're so closely connected. This is what Jesus has in mind. Now, we understand the power of connection, don't we? We are so, we are desperate for connection. I, just as I've been here, I've had no data on this thing because I, I didn't want to get home to England this Wednesday and find myself with like a bill for $500. So I haven't been able to have any, any data, turned off data roaming. And when I've been out and about, I've not been connected. And if I'm honest, and this shows all my idolatry here, I found that really difficult. I've almost found myself at different times anxious about it. So the first thing I do when I move house, and we've moved house like, we've been in like four houses while we've been here. You know, like basically lodging, you know, kind of squatting, in fact, really. To be honest, while people have been away. And, <laughs> and every place I go, the first thing I do is like I open the cupboards, I search, I see if there's any information about what, what the heck is the Wi-Fi password here? <laughs> Like, don't make it something complex, something I remember. Let it be easy. Let me hack it. So I just want to get on that Wi-Fi. I want to be connected. And this Thursday, we went to SeaWorld. And don't judge me. I hadn't seen the movie, the documentary, before I went. So I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> so, you know, have a little grace. But I went to SeaWorld with the kids, and we, we had a great day. But I, want, I needed to be connected with a guy, because I was going to meet him there, and he's going to give me something that belonged to me. And so I wanted to be connected. And 
And in SeaWorld, there's like a few places where you can get free Wi-Fi. But you kind of wander in and out of these Wi-Fi hotspots and you're like, ah, so I was finding myself like, has he texted me? Have I missed him? Has he come? I was really anxious about being disconnected. Kind of a metaphor for what we're like. We're constantly connected. We desire this connection. But there's a deeper connection. Jesus is talking about here, which is on offer. And the connection is not just connection with the internet, not even just connection between humans that he's talking about. It's actually a connection that is the very foundation of human existence. It's a connection that provides the grounding for life. And Jesus is saying that two things emerge when you're properly connected. Firstly, you experience life. Life. You know, without connection with God, you, your experience of life will be sub-standard. In fact, your experience of life without connection to God will be subhuman. Because human was made to experience God. You know, the story of the gospel is not bad people becoming good. It's dead people becoming alive. The world thinks that actually primarily it's a moral story. Now, morality is involved. When you become alive, you will become good. They're not disconnected. We don't want to drive a wedge between these two ideas. But the problem we have, the problem the world has, is not that it's bad primarily. The problem is that it's dead. God wants to bring his world alive. Jesus says that you, you get life if you're in connection with the Father. And secondly, you, you begin to bear fruit. This is the connection we're looking for. This is the connection God imagined for creation. In fact, it's the connection that he imagined from the first in the garden Connected. Connected to what? Connected to himself. Connected to and with his own presence. That's what the garden was about. Presence of God. We talked about that already. The presence of God intimately connected. That's why he showed up to Abraham after connection was lost. It's why he showed up to Moses in the burning bush. It's why he delivered the people from slavery in the Exodus, so that they might worship him, so that they might be connected to him. It's why Jesus came to us to, to, to show us what connection with the Father was like and to facilitate through his death and resurrection, new connection with God the Father. It's why God would go to the extent of dying. It was because he wanted to display connection with his own personal presence. Wanted to make it available in Jesus. Jesus says this, remain in my love. Verse nine, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Now remain in my love. We talked about remaining. It's about connection. It's about being mutually indwelt. It's about being filled with and being close to God the Father. Being close to his heart. Look at what Jesus says. Where, where are we to remain? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love. I love this. This is, this is crazy. This is like, this line itself is so rich. What Jesus is saying is that what he's doing is, is offering us a doorway into the very inner life of God. Think about that. As the Father has loved me. How has the Father loved him? Eternally, the Father has loved him. Eternally, from, but before all time, before creation, the Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. 
unconditionally, without reservation, without condition, without breakage, without stain, purely and, and in a holy way, intimately. This is how the Father loves the Son. Jesus is saying, look, what I have experienced, I'm able to offer you. We know that. You can only offer somebody else what you yourself have experienced. I was thinking, like, how, how, do, I, how do I talk about this? I, I'm going to be a bit vulnerable here. I have, I have a man crush. And I have, a, I have a man crush on Bono. I know if some of you like Bono, Shmano. But I, for me, Bono is like, he's a bit of a long-time hero for me. Like, not just because he's written some great songs and, you know, he's kind of got that cool accent. I always wear glasses. I'm not exactly sure why, but, you know, I'll let that slide. It's because for me, Bono, Bono means something because he's a celebrity with something to say. It feels like he's spent his celebrity well. Some people get really annoyed with him, but I just feel like he's somebody to, to look at and say, here is somebody that is, like, aiming to do something meaningful. I've always just really been drawn to him as a character. I, I, I just really like him. I was just thinking, what would it be like if you know, I've always wanted to meet with him? I've just always wanted to, you know, you write those lists, don't you, about who would you like to have dinner with, dead or alive? I would like a dinner date with Bono. I'd love to hear the things that he says, the things that he thinks about various different things. Now imagine that I went into a pub or a coffee house or whatever, and I began a conversation with someone. I, for some reason, I just felt, you know, I verbal Tourette's or whatever, and, and I just started to tell them about my man crush on Bono and the fact that we've got this sort of one-sided bromance going. And I, I'm really keen on meeting with him and everything else. And, and they just like nodded and said, you know, maybe listen to me for a while. And then just begin to say, they began to say, well, I, I could make that happen. Now, immediately, I'm going to be like really sceptical, right? This person clearly can't make that happen. Who can introduce you to Bono? That guy is untouchable. Like he, he runs in spheres that I, I can't even access. He has a private jet, guys. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and then, but maybe suppose this person then begins to describe Bono in a way that suggests intimate knowledge. Maybe they begin to say things like, here's what Bono likes eating for breakfast. I maybe think that's a bit creepy. But then they begin to say, you know, and, and the great thing about Bono is when you say a certain thing, you know, when I say something to him, he smiles at me in this certain way and he has this name for me and, you know, his middle name's this and everything. And maybe they begin to describe actually a connection with Bono that, that is, is, is lived, it's real. It's as if they're connected to him in a unique way. And, and I then, on the basis of that relationship, may, may have found out this person is, in fact, deeply and richly connected. This is Bono's son. I then begin to believe, on the basis of the connection that they have, that I am able to be invited into that connection. Because they have that relationship, he therefore has the authority to invite me into it. That's what Jesus is saying, like a million times with the Father, that he has this eternal connection to the Father. And because he possesses it, it is his by right. He therefore is able to invite us into it. He has the authority to do so. And this connection, you know, a connection with Bono, an evening with Bono, a dinner with Bono would be of value to me. I'd be tweeting the crud out of that. You know, I'd be like, probably double my followers overnight. And I'd have a story to tell next time I come back here. But it's not going to make or break me. It's not going to change my life in the most meaningful of ways. But what if this connection was your deepest need? What if the connection you were looking for was in fact both your deepest desire and your deepest need? 
Do you know you were created to be connected into the life of God? You as a human being, you were made in God's image, which means that you were made to carry the divine thumbprint. In fact, you were made to be a temple, a dwelling place of God's very life. Do you understand that? That means you are more glorious than you dare imagine. Because every one of you, whatever you think about yourself, you are glorious. You have the capacity to hold within you the life of God. You are made to be a vessel of God's love. Whatever the world has said about you, whatever lie you've begun to believe because of critical words, your own brokenness, your own sin maybe, you are made. You have the capacity inherently because God made you, gave it to you as a gift to bear his love, to carry his love, to know his love, to experience his grace. This is what you were made for. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Do you th- is that the ground of your being? What were we made for? How, what are we supposed to be remaining in? We're remaining in his love. Remain in my love, he says. Somebody who understood or preached certainly powerfully a message of the love of God, of the grace of God, was Brennan Manning. You heard that name? Some of you heard that name. Others of you maybe haven't. You should check Brandon Manning out. He was a very interesting person, died not so long ago. I read a biography of Brandon Manning's, um, actually, funnily enough, another story for another time perhaps, on a plane on the way to the Vatican to play them at cricket. There you go. And uh, <laughs> just an obscure fact. And on the way, I read, I read Brandon Manning's story. It's a fascinating story of a loveless childhood and quite in sort of his later teens, Brandon Manning began to experiment with alcohol and became an alcoholic quite quickly. After he became an alcoholic, he became a Catholic priest. And he was a Catholic priest for a number of years. Had a powerful experience of God. Very, very powerful experience of God, which changed his life. But certain things remained unchanged. And Brandon Manning remained a, uh, an alcoholic for some time. He actually left the priesthood eventually to get married. He later got divorced. And all the while, he he traveled the world preaching this message of God's unconditional love, his gracious acceptance. And one of his catchphrases was, all is grace. He would often uh, preach messages to thousands and then go back to his hotel room and get just plastered, totally blind drunk. He was so drunk, he missed his own mother's funeral one time. Brennan Manning says this in his autobiography. Prone to wonder? You bet. I've been a priest, then an ex-priest. Husband, then ex-husband. Amazed crowds one night and lied to friends the next. Drunk for years, sober for a season, then drunk again. I've been John the Beloved, Peter the Coward, and Thomas the Doubter, all before the waitress brought the check. I've shattered every one of the Ten Commandments six times Tuesday. And if you believe that last sentence was for dramatic effect, it wasn't. I'm steering toward home. Hardly a poster child for anything, anything that is but grace. And what exactly is grace? These pages are my final words on the matter. Grace is everything. I am Brennan, the witness. How different would your life be if you understood that the foundation of your life is the gracious, free love of God in Christ Jesus towards you? 
that he's offered you this love, not because of anything you've done, but because he is just that kind of God. That he is abundant that, that in love, that his anger lasts but a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. How would you behave differently? How would your relationships be shaped differently? It would be the most life-changing realization you could ever receive. It would change every single part of you. It would be the force like a raging river that would sweep away the brokenness, that would heal the wounds that would from within you bubble up to life. How do we play our part? How can we participate in the very life of God? How do we remain in his love? Three things really quickly before I close. Firstly, we need to learn to practice his presence. We need to learn to practice his presence. This is grace. All is grace. And yet it also takes practice. Why? Because we need to learn a second nature. We need to learn how to do this. Just as we practice doing anything worthwhile in life, we need to practice God's presence. There was a medieval monk, mystic, called Brother Lawrence. Some of you may have heard of him. He wrote a book. Well, he didn't write. It was kind of a compilation of his prayers, of his journals, of his thoughts called Practicing the Presence of God. He lived in the 15th century. Fascinating guy. His job in the monastery, he did this for decades, was to wash up. Now, that's what he did. People came from all over Europe to watch him wash up. Wash up dishes. Thank you. What, what would wash up mean for you? Oh, my goodness. You're sick. You're sick, people. Yeah. Where'd you get that from? To wash dishes, folks. Madness. Thanks for the clarification. The whole sermon fell apart there, by the way, if you didn't say that. <laughs> Somber. <laughs> People came from all over Europe to, wa- to watch him wash, dish- wash dishes. <laughs> yes. What an incredible... Why? Because the quality of this man's connection with God was such. The fact he dwelt in God's presence in the midst of his love to such a degree that even his dish washing was compelling. Isn't that amazing? He said this, to the time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. What? That takes practice, folks. That's not going to happen like zap for most of us. Most of us, transformation does not look like the road to Damascus for most of us. Some of us it does. For most of us, it's the road to Emmaus. It's one foot in front of the other. Some of us, it's both. Practice his presence. And and as we practice his presence, we grow. We grow in his presence. You know, the great news about this is you can be like this guy and be a mom changing diapers. You can be like this guy and be streeping the sweets at Sweet Streets. <laughs> that wasn't, that was just a mistake. You can, be, you can be like this guy and like be the President of the United States. You know, God's presence is no respecter of persons, of offices. 
or ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come to Jesus on our knees and, and the Holy Spirit fills all of us, not on the basis of our goodness, on the basis of his grace and his mercy and his love. And we practice his presence, we receive his presence. And as we receive his presence, we grow into his grace. Practice his presence, we grow into his grace. I met with Darren this week. Uh, and he bought me sidecar donuts. It was amazing, we had a great time. <laughs> Incredible just to, to be with him. And he said some words about me and over me, which are really powerful. And one of the things he says is, Johnny, you're so hard on yourself. My parents-in-law, who were here for the first service, have said that as well this holiday. And I realized that I, it's not a new realization, but I think there was a different quality to the realization this time. I had begun to think for the first time that I didn't have to be. That what God wasn't, God wasn't expecting perfection of me. <laughs> he works with the tools he has available. That he was welcoming me to be used as I am. That and, and this critical voice that I've lived with, this lie that, that I've lived with, that I have to be hard on myself to do God's job for him, you know, because my, obviously my perspective of him was that he wanted to be hard on me too. I didn't have to live with that any longer. There's a poem where, I don't know who it was that writes this poem and, and says, be exceedingly gracious with yourself. As Darren said those words, I was reminded of that poem and I thought, gosh, I've really got to grow into that. I've got to put that new, I've got to put this new outfit, which is God's love, on. I have to wear it. I have to practice putting it on. And for me to do that, I need to grow into that. I need to take off some other things I've been wearing. Self-criticism, guilt, shame, fear. As as we practice this, we grow into that new reality. You know, Don Williams, who sits on the front row here a lot, a lot of the time, he's not here this weekend because he's, he's literally preaching to the choir of Hollywood Presbyterians. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> he's preaching to the choir this weekend. And I remember once I did something really stupid. I don't know what it was, but I called Don to sort of confess it. And I expected, you know, I was kind of braced myself. And Don's response surprised me. Don said, Johnny, grace, grace, grace. And in that moment, I knew I'd heard from the Father. Surprising to me, but I'd heard from the Father. We grow in his grace. Finally, we lean into his love. Manning says this, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other self, every other identity is illusion. We lean in though, we lean in. It's it's not passive, it's active. And my wife, Amy, is the most incredible example of this. In her late, time, in her late teens, uh, she really, really struggled with approval addiction. She just wanted to please people, wanted to, you know, to do whatever it took to make them approve of her. And she knew this was a problem. She'd read some books, and the Bible being one, <laughs> and some other books as well, and she just wanted to be free of this. And so every morning she'd wake up. Sometimes she'd wake up just with this, this, I still have this, you know, in the mornings. This, for me, it's anxiety, but for her, it's just a sense of shame. She'd wake up with this, like, it's like, almost like a cloud. You have this, like, June gloom. Just this cloud of shame. And she said, I'd look in the mirror, and I'd just begin to speak truth over myself. She said, I'd just say over myself, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. She'd just do that every day. Over time, she lent into that truth, lent into his love, That became her truth. She began to believe it. (laughs) 
that time as well, around that time, she really dealt not just with approval addiction, but with problems with self-image, just an just a insecurity about her self-image. She would look in the mirror every morning saying, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. As she did that, her inner landscape changed. She leant into this, not away from it, but into it. One I've been trying on this week is this. It's a Latin phrase. Don't be impressed. I don't know Latin. Kia amasti me, fecisti me, amabilem. Because you loved me, you made me lovable. Because you loved me, you made me lovable. Church, the garden, you are lovable. You are loved. Not because of anything you carry in yourself. You are loved because he loves you. He makes you lovable. Do you believe it? Are you willing to practice his presence? Are you willing to grow into that grace, that perspective which says everything is gift? Are you willing to lean into that? Can you imagine what holy carnage God might release in Long Beach if you did? Let's close with just a brief picture of this from Brennan Manning. Your Christian life and mine don't make any sense unless in the depth of our beings we believe that Jesus not only knows what hurts us, but knowing seeks us out, whatever our poverty, whatever our pain. His plea to his people is come now wounded, frightened, angry, lonely, empty, and I'll meet you where you live. And I love you as you are, not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. Do you really believe this? That with all the wrong turns you made in your past, the mistakes, the moments of selfishness, dishonesty, and degraded love, do you really believe that Jesus Christ loves you? Not the person next to you, not the church, not the world, but that he loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity. That he loves you in the morning sun and the evening rain without caution, regret, boundary, limit, no matter what's gone down, he can't stop loving you. This is the Jesus of the Gospels.